the business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, creatives, media, and technology. Mucho mas. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're thinking about who can help you get to where you are. I guarantee you there are five high school students who want to be in your chair. Oh, you're an entry-level producer, and that sounds great, and I want to help you get there. I guarantee you there are 10 people in college who want to get into your chair. So if you have also just that that service, that that spirit of service, and you're willing to give back, I, did, I truly believe the universe will reward you. If you are pouring into other people, people will pour into you. In case you missed it, back at you with another Full Disclosure Rewind, featuring highlights from recent episodes, including the president of MSNBC, the duo of Pope and Shapiro on what Virginia's 2023 elections just told us, best-selling author and investor Morgan Housel, and pro tips from the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. So stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with MSNBC President Rashida Jones, who we welcome back to Richmond with a packed live taping at the U of R's business school. She discussed her two-decade journey from Henrico High School and Hampton University to becoming the first black executive to lead a major TV news network. I'm joined live on stage by MSNBC President Rashida Jones at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business, a homecoming of sorts for a let's say majority RVA product. I know you give props to York PA and the peppermint patty and you were born. (laughs) I'm going to start and I have your family here and I have your high school principal here. And I, I mean, she asked me to stop saying that because it it dates her. So (laughs) I loved seeing, I love seeing she met you outside of the green room, just the, the happiness. You know, I told the current principal when I was at a Henrico high open house that we're bringing Rashido back. There's just so much pride because you pulled this off in less than 20 years. And I just gotta, I have to, you know, ask, stepping back from it, what was that moment? This is a through line for all NPR things. What was the moment where you as a kid kind of knew that you could, right? And it was just a matter at this point of hard work and diligence and luck. Was it a person? Was it a revelation? Was it a moment? I don't think there was any one moment that I kind of turned the page and said I could. I, I think it was my parents. Like, we were always taught, it was not even can you. It's like, why can't you? What do you mean you can't? Oh, there's a such thing as straight A's. You can't get straight A's. Please explain to me why you can't. Like, it wasn't a question of of not striving for excellence. And we were always raised that way. And in, in, in a, I don't want to say like a matter of fact way, you know, it's not like there was like unfair pressure or undue pressure. It just was. Like, you guys are as capable as anyone else. And so why not strive for excellence? And so it kind of started from the very beginning. And, and so there was no question of trying to do things. Now, at that time, you know, when I when I um, lived here, did I think necessarily that I would be in this chair? You know, I, I didn't necessarily dream that big, but I, it's because I didn't know to dream that big. But I knew that there was always going to be opportunity. And I, and I especially knew that there's opportunity if you work hard, if you apply yourself, if you're diligent, if you put your head down, but also go after what your dreams are. It is a wild card question for you. What was it like in the control room, wherever you are, to see the Confederate monuments in Richmond come down? So that was Because everybody in this town was saying, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Right? Charlottesville is Charlottesville. But it all happened. In, 2020 was such a historic year and so much dislocation and strife and heartbreak. And that just all happened very rapidly. And the only one standing is Arthur Ashe. Yeah. So, so what was interesting is being in New York, watching the monuments come down, here in Richmond and the flag come off of the capital of Columbia, South Carolina, where I also lived, it was in a, in a strange way, it reminded me of my, my own path and trajectory. And the idea that you rode past those monuments every day. And it, when, you know, when, when I lived here, it was, they just were, and you never thought that they wouldn't ever be just there. 
And it, it was almost like a marker of change. You know, one of one of my friends is, was actually runs the company that actually physically took the yeah, down. That took the selfie. Yeah, he took the selfie and the historic um, picture. Devon, and it's just like it was just full circle in a lot of ways. And and also, I think for me, and, and I often talk about this, like having teams with a, a, a diversity of a lot of perspectives and background and geography, sitting in a control room in New York City, having lived here. I was able to add a different context and perspective to that than someone from from another location. And so it also in some ways made me proud of the diversity of my background and the fact that I could pull upon all aspects of my life as this world was changing. I see Principal McQueen Williams doting on you. You were editor of the high school newspaper and the yearbook at Henrico High School. I was busy. Okay, where did that where did that come? I mean, I'm thinking back to high school and my guidance counselor didn't want to deal with me in the tenth grade. Like, get out of this office. <laughs> See me senior year. That was you you spaz. Um, and it's it's a very hard time. We got the hormones raging, you worry about the car. Um, I don't know what the scene in Henry no High School was back then. <laughs> there was no, no car. car. <laughs> Take me back to that and you say, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna set my sights on it. So I always knew I wanted to be a writer and I didn't know what that- And why? Why did you want to be a writer? I liked telling stories. I liked talking to people. I also had this weird thing in me and and maybe it's because I was the oldest of three. Like I kind of liked telling people what to do. (laughs) I didn't like that a little bit. And so this idea, like I, I almost consider my job now the combination of the two things that I spent the most time doing in high school. I was the president of the student government and I was the editor of the newspaper. And if you put those jobs together, it's the president of MSNBC. <laughs> that's basically that's basically what I do now. And so I, some of it was like finding ways to piece it together, right? And so I like this idea of storytelling, but I thought it was I, I thought it was gonna be an English teacher because oh the person who I knew who wrote the most was my English teacher. Then she got me into into the paper because she was also the sponsor for the newspaper. So I started doing that. I was a print major actually when I started at Hampton because I didn't know about television. And Pretty quickly, when I learned about television, this is within the first few weeks of, of, of class at Hampton, and I realized that there was a role where you could tell stories, you could set the agenda. As a leader, you were also deciding the stories and working with teams to help put those stories together. And there was an immediacy of television that was called broadcast. I was like, sign me up for that. And so I basically, again, been able to take all of the things that I was passionate about in life growing up and turn that into a career. Were you an honor student and a very hardworking? <laughs> I would say, yes, I was. And how, I want to know, how did you choose Hampton yeah. and the HBCU route? Because from everything I've gathered, between York and Richmond, you were not at historically black public colleges. No, I, I, um, I really didn't know a lot about HBCUs. I knew, you know, I was, I was a, a good student. I was an honor student. Um, I knew I wanted to go a little bit away, but not too far away. And it was, I was introduced to Hampton. Actually, I was in this program through the YMCA called the Black Achievers Program. And we did a college tour and we went to Hampton, A&T, Bennett, NC Central, and maybe a couple of other schools. And I basically took those schools and said, at least I've seen these campuses. Let me apply to all of them and pick from there. And there was just something different about Hampton. I think it was the historic nature of it. I didn't know this until I got there, but one of the things that I've gotten out of the school is just this, this like forever life connection. It was, it built upon this kind of standard of excellence that we were raised with. And it just, it just felt like the right place to be. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's one of the best decisions I ever made. Tell me about you at age 17 and uh, Barbara Sierra. Yeah. So Barbara, Barbara started as a classmate. She is a retiring anchor now at WTKR in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, she, she'd been there for a very long time. She went back to school to finish her degree because she left school early to work in television. And she had few classes to take. Her last class wound up being one of my first classes. I met her in class. Um, I had to find out, like, who is this sophisticated woman wearing all this makeup? I realized it was TV makeup. <laughs> and just she speaks so well. And she's got so much presence. And I kind of latched onto her. And as you could imagine, you know, a group of 17 years aren't a ton latching onto, you know, someone who's like twice their age. But she took me under her wing. I crawled under that wing. And she's been my mentor since I was 17 years old. She started as a classmate. She came back as a professor at Hampton. She helped me get my first job interview that turned into my first television job. And she's someone I talk to on a regular basis even today. 
I really want to get into the heart of that conversation because you had to have, you, yes, this is this true north mission. I need to document this for history, but you also had to have an inchoate faith that this is going to work as a career. You you have to. And look, I remember early in my television career, um, work, you know, producing a newscast every night and then having a second, a part-time job at the mall. I remember during my, my internship period, and, and my mom might remember this, I was interning in New York. Um, we were not New York resource. New York is very expensive. And I remember my mom coming up to visit and she's like, how are you doing this? But it was because they were helping. They were, they were aiding me. And it was, even if it was, you know, two buses and a train for an hour and a half to get to work and the same coming back, I wanted the experience and I wanted this career. And so, so my point there is- With Barbara or somebody else saying, stick with it, keep the faith. Along the way, many people. And, and, and I think that's what it is. You've got to have the conviction. This is hard, hard work. You can only do it if you truly feel the passion. You can't sustain it for, for years unless you have the passion. So you've got to have the passion. Then you've got to have that group of people who are pushing you along, encouraging you. I know this is difficult. I know you don't really want to work part-time at Victoria's Secret, but if that's what it takes to be able to stay into, in this industry, you've got to do it. And if you don't have those two things together, if I didn't have those two things together, I don't know that I would have been able to stick with it. How did you luck out and find a mentor at age 17? I find so many people will tell you that there were false prophets or false gods they encountered early on. It's not easy. Some of it, I think, is a two-way street. You can't be a mentee of anyone unless you're willing to be a resource to them and you're willing to mentor other people. And, and so for me, I always believe in paying it forward and, and things come full circle. And, and I tell students this all the time when, when, I, when I speak at schools and whatnot, you're thinking about who can help you get to where you are. I guarantee you there are five college, high school students who want to be in your chair. Oh, you're an entry-level producer and that sounds great and I want to help you get there. I guarantee you there are 10 people in college who want to get into your chair. So if you have also just that that service, that that spirit of service and you're willing to give back, I, did, I truly believe the universe will reward you. If you are pouring into other people, people will pour into you. Tell me, tell me about the call up to MSNBC. Yvette Miley is someone we have in yeah. common and I think she there's a there's a sign. I grew up in Miami. I'm a Miami kid, child of the '80s. There, and you have Jose Diaz Ballard and Yvette yeah. Miley and a bunch of people who came up through the old WTVJ system. How did she find you, and how did she encourage you? She found me because we were meant to be. Um, so I I met Yvette when I was working at the Weather Channel, and at the time NBC was a partial owner of the Weather Channel, and um, she and as she will say she saw something in me that maybe I didn't see at the time. And uh, she's she's the one who who called me up for that first job. I moved to New York um, with two kids in tow. And again, there were moments where I was like, I, like, is this the right thing? Do I think I can do this? And she, you know, she her attitude is always, well, again, why can't you do it? And every career move that I've made since then, Yvette has had in some way either been, um, she's, she's either pushed me directly, she's either kicked me in the butt, she either said, if you're reaching for this star, go for the one above that. And she's just always been that constant. I said to her the other day, I don't know why you have other friends or talk to other people. You're not just waiting for me to call you for advice all day because that's how I would like this to work. Because I just, I depend on her, even if it's just for um, positive encouragement. And, and when you look at someone like that who's done so much in her career and she sees the, the opportunity for you to soar as well, you know, that that's a, not only a relationship that I want to pour into, but it's also the motivation to be the event for someone else. You were listening to some of the recent Full Disclosure Live with MSNBC President Rashida Jones. Catch the entire conversation at fullderadio.com, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. We continue with some of my recent talk with Dan Roth, the star magazine journalist who became LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. The social network is booming under Microsoft's ownership, and the diminishing reliability of Elon Musk's Twitter or X, whatever he's calling it. Roth dished on how to make the most of LinkedIn. Dan, if I'm sitting next to you at a bat mitzvah uh, or a wedding or something, I always do this kind of. I imagine it's a it's a Dan Roth type question. If I if I had the luxury of meeting Dan Roth and I had his best practice, he would say, meet a source or a person you never knew and say, what are the one or two things or three things, the pointers, kind of parenthetical pointers, like the you know the yeah. old cl cliche thing is a, a sushi chef would tell you not to get sushi on a Sunday night if 
if you're getting the fish shipments on a Monday morning, you know, a funeral home operator might tell you something else, a plastic surgeon, you know, the pro tips we certainly as journalists have shared parenthetical asides to people. I want to know kind of get down to brass tacks, the bullets of like, how do I immediately clean up and yeah, sure. make my LinkedIn act the most efficacious? Okay. So here are my tips and tricks. Number one is you should be posting. Everyone should be posting. Everyone has knowledge to share. And I think it is sometimes hard for people to remember that there are, or to realize that there are other people who are hungry for that knowledge. And it trips people up. They're like, I don't know if I should be sharing on LinkedIn. What should I share? What can I say? How do I sound right? My tip is always just to post and don't even look at the metrics. Just start if you have this idea in mind of I'm giving back and I'm going to share. There's something that I have been doing that I want to share with other people. And it could be simple. Like for instance, what microphones you use to start a podcast. That is interesting. There are other people who are like, I, have, I want to start a podcast. I have no way to do it. If you're like, here are my five tips for how to start a podcast. Super successful on LinkedIn. You should know what it is that you want to share about, what it is in your professional world that you're like, I'm kind of an expert in this, or I, or I want to become an expert in this. And you just start posting and you post regularly. So number one is like, just post with your authentic voice about what's going on at the beginning. Don't look at the numbers. All you're doing. Should I care about strategic hashtagging? I'm serious here. Absolutely not. There are ways of tagging people and making, you know, like all these. You'll hear nibble on a person's ear. I want to get you involved. Exactly. There is no. Sometimes you'll hear from people who think they've figured out the system and the algorithms, and I'm going to reveal to you like how the algorithm works, so you can understand why I'm giving these tips. But the answer is just be authentic. So that's number one. What kind of content you want to do? What do you talk about with your colleagues? Like post that kind of stuff. At mentions are super powerful. So this idea of when I post on there, if I want to make sure that somebody responds to it, I use the at sign, I write their name out. They will then go to notification. It's one of our highest performing notifications. Robin tagged you into a post and wants to hear from you. Those do incredibly well. So you should you don't want to overdo it. Overdoing it is something that, that the system frowns upon. But if you say, if you pick a few people and you say, I want to hear from these people, or for instance, I was at a wedding last week and I talked to Susan Smith and we had a great conversation and she shared with me these three tips that I love. At mention Susan Smith, she'll almost always come back in and leave a comment on the post or say something. And when she does that, we then show it to her network. So you want to make sure and and all of this, the whole reason this works is because our algorithms are looking for conversations. We're looking for a couple of things. One, knowledge is being shared. We want to make sure our belief is that all of the world's professional knowledge lives in the heads of professionals everywhere. And if we can just help get it out in the world, the economic opportunity awaits everyone. So that's that's the idea. And so what the algorithms are looking for is, is a conversation going on here? And is it an authentic professional conversation? So they want to see that two people who have who are going back and forth on something and they're sharing gold knowledge. You know, they're sharing great knowledge. Like that's something that we'll keep sharing. I don't understand. And if if that is, that's then there. That's blasted. We out. might show right. So we'll show. So for instance, if you say you talk about, hey, I'm I just got promoted and I'm really excited about that. For that kind of content, we'll show that. For those kind of posts, we'll show that to your network. That's something that's really important that your network see. You've connected with these people. You follow these people. There, you have some touch point with them, and they are likely to come back in and say. Congratulations, Robin. You got promoted. I love that. That's not great content for people who don't know you. If I don't know you, when mm-hmm. I see them, I feel I'm like, what do I care about this guy who got promoted? And why is LinkedIn showing it to me? So those kind of like the kind of content we talked about at the beginning of this conversation together about this idea of this kind of social juice of this connectedness, we show that to your network. That's really important network content. It's mm-hmm. essential to how professionals work. You build trust with each other and you build relationships. So we want to make sure we're showing that. The next level is this kind of knowledge sharing content. Here's what I learned from creating a podcast. That kind of content, we'll start showing that. We'll show it to your network, and then we'll show it to people who are interested in podcasts. So we can see these are the topics people care about. These are the kind of stuff that they spend more, that they either share or save or spend time on. We're looking for these signals that tell us this is the kind of content that someone is getting some use out of show them more of it. And that's the kind of stuff that will leave your network. So the more you're teaching, the more you're giving back about how the professional world works, that's the kind of stuff that tends that will leave your network and start spreading across LinkedIn. And that qualifies as quality engagement. I mean, I hear engagement kicked around a lot. Yeah. I don't know what it what it means. I mean, if people are liking things, if they're sharing it, if they're chiming in and sharing it with their networks. Yeah, that those are all that would all be quality. We don't use that term quality engagement, but that would all be in the vernacular quality engagement. Absolutely. You know, the other part is I think sometimes people come to LinkedIn and they're like, oh, I want to go viral. And 
there's just not that much that goes viral on LinkedIn on purpose. And that's because there's very little that as professionals, we all need to hear about. And, you know, this is not like we don't one of the things we don't measure on LinkedIn is time spent. We don't care if you are. Our goal is not to keep you on the app all day long. If you're on the app all day long, it means you're not actually doing your job. If you're not doing your job, you're not connecting to economic opportunity. Our goal is to connect people to economic opportunity. And so we're failing at our job if you are spending. We're failing at our mission if you're spending all day on LinkedIn. But you should get here. You should come here. You should get what you need. And then you come back, hopefully, because it was so valuable, you come back for more. So the idea of viral content doesn't really work with what we're trying to do. We want people to get great information, feel like they learned something, and then it paid off for them in the real world. They got promoted. They got a great job. They got a raise. They found a business partner. They launched a company. You know, it's like a million things. They got booked onto a show or a podcast, or they spoke at a conference, or they got a book deal. All of that stuff counts as economic opportunity. That is how we know if we've succeeded. I'd like to take the conversation. I'd like to upsell it to AI. Of course, your parent company, Microsoft, is software cash cow, cloud cash cow. It's had a hand in every pot. And now artificial intelligence is a great driver of of search and maybe some of the functionality uh, that you could get. I hear people getting more excited about the Excel spreadsheet than they've been in decades because of the AI autocomplete capabilities. But uh, use your illusion a little bit if you let me, you know, channel a little GNR. Can you harvest this data, not in a nefarious way, uh, to help us with analytics and you know all this stuff that you're seeing, motion and movements and analysis and if-then scenarios to help with the AI capabilities of the parent company, Microsoft, into something that's truly value-added? And I don't know if I just sounded like a lot of uh, PR boilerplate, but I also am trying to get my head around totally. this. Totally. So uh, I'll tell you something we launched this year that has gotten me really excited. We launched something called Collaborative Articles. And this is uses AI and humans to really try to unleash as much knowledge as possible. So again, our goal is to get all of the knowledge of the world's professionals out into the world and being shared. It is sometimes difficult to get people to share what they know because they either don't know what they know or they're not sure whether it's valuable or they're scared to do it or they don't know how to do it. There's a million reasons that stop people from sharing how to be a great accountant or with the value of C++ over C. I mean, I'm, now I'm speaking out. Of, I, I, I got to rein myself back in because I'm talking about topics that I'm not an expert on. But each one of us has these niche areas that we are experts on or that we know something about. So we did something called collaborative articles that we started in, I think, February, which takes AI. And basically, we write these. We have AI working with Microsoft here to be able to create articles about specific topics, really niche, narrow topics that start, they go broad and then they get super, super niche. Might be about one programming language or one area of software as a service. And we then take that article, which is fine. I mean, that's written by AI. It's really, they're pretty good. They're not anything that you would ever want to spend too much time with, but they're not, they answer the questions. But they answer them in a very basic way. We don't actually care about those articles. We care about using them as thought starters to get the real expert sharing. So this is where the magic happens. We take those articles. We then can use, thanks to LinkedIn data, some we can see who is who has skills in each one of those particular areas. They get a notification. It'll say, hey, Bruce, you are an expert in accounting. We think this is an article where you might have some expertise. Can you come tell us how to really think about this through your lived experience? And it'll show them an article about, I don't know, gap accounting. And it'll ask a bunch of questions. And then you have accountants coming in and saying, well, this is how you do it. You do X, Y, and Z. This is how I do it. And the AI part starts fading into the background and the human voices start coming forward. But the AI brought out the human voices. And what we are seeing is that people love this. They are like, oh yeah, I am an expert in this. And what I say matters. And so like, there was a great one I was on the other day that was about, if you're going to give a speech, how to memorize your speech. And it was all of these people who were experts in this area giving these incredible tips. I never went to the the AI article had faded into the background and was just an article of tips at this point. And that's when you start marrying AI and humans. And and our goal is to give humans better economic opportunities. So anytime we are using AI, it is about that. We'll use AI to match content to the right people. We'll use it to get more information out into the world. So we use it as kind of a co-pilot in that that area. I think you'll see us increasingly use it to help understand your own data on LinkedIn. So there's a lot. It is going to be part of everything that we do at LinkedIn. You were listening to some of the recent episode, The LinkedIn Doctrine. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your pods. Do stay with us. 
Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and rate us, is fulldradio.com. Follow on all social media at handle Full D Radio. And be on the lookout for Steve Inskeep. He's rescheduled. The NPR Morning Edition host is coming to Richmond to do Full Disclosure Live at the end of January. Pencil in January 31st. We'll have a link live soon at the University of Richmond's website. So do follow. If you are just joining us, welcome to Full Disclosure Rewind, featuring highlights from recent episodes. Veteran Virginia political reporters Jeff Shapiro and Michael Pope, they go by Pope and Shapiro, delved into what Virginia's 2023 election suggests about election 2024 and beyond. Your neck of the woods, we've talked about this before, Michael, in Northern Virginia. I'm thinking, you know, Alexandria, Arlington, Tysons. It's known kind of internally, we joke that it's kind of a different state. Jeff and I have discussed before where that intrastate Mason-Dixon line is, where you cross what bridge, what river, what part of, I don't know, southern Fredericksburg, where it suddenly becomes the north and ceases to be the south. But I get the impression from this and what's happened in kind of the suburbs of Richmond, you described it, Henrico County, Goochland, other areas, that there's kind of a kind of a creeping northern Virginiaism, or is that more on and off depending on the year? Well, you know, actually, it's it's interesting you talk about the influence of Northern Virginia, because the last time Democrats were in power, we had a Speaker of the House from Fairfax County and a Senate Majority Leader from Fairfax County. The next Democratic majority that we're about to see in January 2024 will have a Senate Majority Leader from Fairfax County, but a Speaker of the House from the Hampton Roads area. So it's true that Northern Virginia, you know, continues to play a very important role in Virginia politics, but it's probably in the future, at least the immediate future, going to be a somewhat diminished role. Well, we come back to Yunkin. There are, of course, idiosyncrasies of being Virginia governor. You can't run again unless you wait out a term. You can't have two successive terms. There were hopes that he could come in and be spoiler, an alternative, a well-financed, backed alternative to Donald Trump and the others in that race are not really getting traction, whether it's DeSantis, maybe Nikki Haley. But does this leave him as a lame duck? Uh, it would seem that uh, the, uh, the the Yunkin presidential striptease is over, that uh, he's been yanked off the stage uh, by events most recently. This embarrassment, and there's no other word to describe it, uh, at the legislative level. The morning after the Republicans lost control of the General Assembly, remember the Democrats held the Senate and tipped the House, they did lose a seat in, in the Senate, folks on Glenn Youngkin's favorite cable channel, that would be Fox, were describing this defeat, Fox's words, as an epic failure. Hmm. Uh, and as I think we were discussing, you know, earlier in, in this, uh, this this segment, there was clearly uh, uh, there were clearly limits to the transferability, if you will, of of the governor's su- supposed popularity. I'm of the view that, you know, the strongest argument for national candidacy by a Virginia governor, the only governor in the country who cannot seek consecutive terms, is to have a successful term as Mm. governor. Uh, And, you know, if that were the case, Youngkin might be able to set himself up for, say, 2028, or on leaving office in January 26, when Mark Warner will be up for re-election to the Senate, perhaps, if this is an interest of Youngkin's, standing for Congress. I'm still trying to understand. I thought that he was able to turn out certain uh, red districts that were not fully hearted for Donald Trump in 2020, that there was some magic he had at turnout or maybe analytics or deep mining to see how you can get people out, how you could squeeze more red out of a purple state in order to eke out what was it, a two-point win, and how much of that still applies to anybody looking to win this state, whether the Electoral College or governor. Yeah, the governor was elected with 50.6% of the vote. I mean, it was a it was a squeaker. 
And one of the things that uh, the folks in his political operation have been pointing out following uh, this legislative election is that, you know, there were Biden carried districts in which um, Republicans uh, outperformed uh, the Democrats. And that ultimately it came down to about 1,400 votes separating uh, the Democrats and continued Republican control of the House and a Republican majority restored in the Senate. One of the things that the governor did in this campaign, he was a convert on early voting. You know, his view about early voting was somewhat, mm. you know, Trumpy, that uh, there's no substitute like showing up on an election day because, you know, that way people can't tamper uh, with the votes. His position changed. He said, these are the rules we sh- we need to play by them. It was, you know, his objective to generate additional Republican votes. I think one of the things that early voting may have confirmed this go-around is that it's really not as much about finding, mining, and harnessing new votes as it is front-loading a vote that you're going to receive or you're likely to receive on election day itself. I had a wild card for you, Michael Pope, in your neck of the woods. Adele McClure, who's been on the show before, in the Virginia House of Delegates, she won District 2, which makes her the first black person and first Asian person elected to the legislature from Arlington County. For those who don't recall, we had her on several years ago. Adele was uh, food insecure when she uh, matriculated at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. She rallied around the opportunity. She found help. She came from a childhood of instability and poverty and being evicted and evicted and evicted. And she became student body president at Virginia Commonwealth University and then was a chief aide to then lieutenant governor and then dropped out from that and then found her own voice. And was a star just born in Arlington County, Michael Pope? Yeah, I think so. Adele McClure, obviously very impressive person. I will say she ran unopposed. So there was no one else on the ballot there in Arlington going up against Adele McClure, um, which actually puts her in league with a very large number of candidates who had no opposition and not just incumbents. I mean, Adele McClure is one of the non-incumbents who had no opposition. In fact, I think it was like one out of four candidates, um, one out of four races were totally unopposed. And Adele McClure is one of them. Arlington, of course, leans very blue. That particular district leans very heavily for the Democrats. It's plus 55 points for the Democrats. So Republican in that district in Arlington would have to overcome a 55-point disadvantage, which is probably why you didn't see any Republicans announcing in opposition to, to Adele McClure. I want to step back and take it to my former congresswoman, Abigail Spanberger. It used to be the Virginia 7th, and we've had her on the show a couple of times. Uh, I bumped into her a few weeks ago uh, in Henrico County. It was interesting when she did win the first time in 2018, Jeff Shapiro. I'm sure you've covered this quite closely. She ousted the Freedom Party, I guess the Tea Party insurgent, Dave Bratt, who ousted Eric Cantor, who was, I mean, that was thought as the biggest upset in U.S. political history, I believe, when it happened in 2014. And then here she is, the first woman to ever win that seat, which had been Republican, I think, going back to 1971. And now, even after you know winning a, a difficult election and a kind of a redistricted swath, she's going to run for governor. And she seems to be a celebrated figure among the kind of the winnowing moderate wing of the Democratic Party. She's been outspoken before as to kind of how you have to not use the word socialism or defund the police. I always joke with her when we had her on the show, like, what do you say to AOC at the uh, Capitol Hill vending machine? And she seems to kind of be antipodal to that. What are your thoughts on her gubernatorial push? Well, one of the things that's important to to note about Spanberger's success as a congressional candidate, these districts, the old 7th and the new 7th, include lots of red territory, but they are anchored with increasingly blue suburbs. Hmm. Her first go around, that was Western Henrico County and part of Chesterfield. Uh, In this, the new 7th, that includes Prince William County. But one of the things that that Spanberger does very well is directly engage voters in what is widely viewed as hostile territory, whether in the old district, Louisa County, or in the new district, Madison County, places where the Republican votes tend to run 
two to one. This is an important feature of her gubernatorial candidacy, that not only does she appeal to the Democratic base for the most part, but because of a measure of independence, which includes, for example, opposing Nancy Pelosi not once but twice for speaker, she has some appeal with independent voters and maybe the few remaining centrist Republicans who are having increasing difficulty voting for candidates of their party. In Virginia, despite the continuing suburbanization, which is fueling this increasingly blue response, elections are still pretty much decided in the middle. Spanberger understands that and uh, intends to harness that in this gubernatorial campaign. By the way, one would note that this has been a very well-orchestrated rollout. No sooner than she declared her candidacy, and it had been expected, uh, than she was picking up lots of important endorsements. So Mm. all of the other, the three other Democratic Congress people from Northern Virginia endorsed her. Former I, I read or I heard somewhere that she was generous with her. How does it even work with your personal political war chest kind of seeding chits or you know, how does it even work? Like you, you don't expect that a, someone who's running for office every two years who I thought kind of sort of barely won the last time around after she was redistricted has an abundance of clout and money to seed other kind of fledgling candidates and win their support going into a gubernatorial race. Well, remember, money is the mother's milk of politics. And Spanberger, a couple of years ago, had indicated that she was going to be helping Democratic candidates at the local and, and regional level and setting up a pack that would, with which she would hoover up dollars that she would then steer to candidates. Uh, she was also generous with her time and uh, was showing up in lots of places. Uh, clearly uh, with the intention of feeding the curiosity about her presumed gubernatorial candidacy. By the way, I would note that among those early endorsements she has received is one from Ralph Northam, the former governor, whose home base is in Hampton Roads, that southeastern corner of of the state, which can be very competitive and where a a Northam endorsement uh, still has, uh, has some cred. It's also an area of the state where there are significant numbers of black voters. And that is a a slice of the Democratic coalition that Spanberger's opponent, LeVar Stoney, the mayor of Richmond, will be avidly pursuing as a man of color himself. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Finally, internationally best-selling investor Morgan Housel was on to discuss his new book, Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. On the theme of compounding and, you know, optimism, which is a through line in this book and the difficulty of being optimistic, because I guess pessimism reflects it. Pessimism seems so much more authentic and I feel your pain and it's not Pollyannish, but, and yet, and I know you cited in an interview you did, somebody saying the best day of her life was the end of World War I because a world war would never happen again. I also saw a stat, you probably saw it from our friend Barry Ritholtz this week, had a World War One soldier going off to World War One from the United States said, look, this is my entire life savings of $1,000. If I put it in a mason jar and bury it for progeny versus putting it in whatever the S&P was back then, the S&P 40, the S&P 50. So that $1,000 would be $1,000 nominally. You kind of open the thing up in real terms, right? In inflation adjusted terms, I think it'd be worth something like $40 today. No one could tell you that the $1,000 in the S&P compounded at something like 10.2% a year throughout such a volatile and otherwise miserable century would be worth more than $30 million in 2023. And I'm thinking about that woman that you talked about. I'm thinking about the many historical things that you prop up. I mean, things such as croup that would kill people back then. Horrors, not just of World War I, but then World War II. 
and uh, the Korean War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, various things that happened, devaluation, hyperinflation, the Iran hostage crisis, crash of 87, things on the chart that look so de minimis right now. The crash of 87 or you know, institutional memory, a lot of young traders on Wall Street don't know about the SNL crisis. It's kind of like it's completely forgotten. That's pre-pre-subprime. They don't know what happened in 1994. And yet you plot all of these events over a long kind of Ibbotson chart. I'm sure you've seen it before. And the market does what the market does. And we've had so many innovations. And I think 2003 me would be blown away by the fact that I stream through Bluetooth in my car and any song pretty much that was ever created, I could effortlessly have that we have an AIDS cocktail, that there are certain things that have certainly give you fodder for depression and sadness, inflation, war in the Middle East, the biggest war in, in Europe, maybe since World War II. And yet it seems like optimism and compounding are underrated. I mean, here's how I'd, I'd respond to that. To the person who, let's say, hypothetically invests $1,000 in 1918, and now it's $30 million. You know, let's not pretend that that was easy in the slightest, because you had the number of national tragedies and traumas and uncertainties that you had to live through is endless. We don't need to list them all, but the Great Depression, World War II, and inflation, 9-11, COVID. So let's not pretend that that was easy money in the, in the slightest. That was actually like very difficult to do. So one of the chapters in the book, it talks about like how hard it is to be long-term. It's one thing I always equate it to saying, saying I'm a long-term investor is like standing at the base of Mount Everest and pointing to the top and saying, that's where I'm going. You're like, okay, great. That's good. And now you have to climb up. Now comes the hard part. And even if you are, you say you're a long-term investor, the long-term is just a collection of short terms. And the short term is a collection of setbacks and surprises and recessions and bear markets and pandemics and wars and terrorist attacks that you need to experience and endure and survive financially and, and able to stick around for the long term. And that's actually like emotionally, that can be very, very difficult. So even for that person who invested in 1918, they probably went through a 20 or 22 year period where they had less money adjusted for inflation than when they started. And that even even for the the most diehard optimistic person will start to eat away at your at your vision and your values. So. And second guessing. And I think even the institutional people you'll deal with, uh, portfolio managers, uh, limited partners, everything that have to go back and talk to investment committees and say, no, we want to stay with value. We want to stay with international. I don't want to get in the weeds with you, but that kind of faith, it's easy in retrospect. It's easy to say that Y2K was diluted and it was a time to get out of the United States, You know, crowded big tech trade before the worst decade since the depression. In practice, it's brutally hard to not chase the trend. Including a part of this is that if you are a professional investor, if you're a fund manager, it's very difficult from a business point standpoint to tell your investors, oh, just be patient for the next 10 years. The yeah. returns are going to suck, but just, just stay with me for 10 years. By and large, they won't do that. They might give you a year to prove yourself. Sure. And then if you haven't proven yourself, they're gone. And then your business walks out the door and you're done. So even if you are, if you're a professional fund manager, and even if you are correctly optimistic on the next decade and you say, look, there's going to be a lot of volatility, but over the next 10 years, this is all going to pay off. By and large, you can't actually run a business doing that. And that's why in the industry as a whole, it kind of leans towards short-termism. It's not that people don't know how to be long-term optimists. It tends to, it just tends to be that the business of investing almost naturally pushes people towards an uncomfortable and inefficient short-termism. You know, Morgan, in the chapter, now you get it. Nothing is more persuasive than what you've experienced firsthand. I really took it to heart and I'm, I think about this all the time. I'm 25 years removed from college graduation. And what is it that I can't stop thinking about the year 1998 and when I, you know, got my job in the brokerage industry and the collapse of long-term capital management and the ruble collapsing and Boris Yeltsin teetering. I mean, that's ancient history. I think oil fell to $10 a barrel nominally. And I took that information and everything else I learned as a practitioner and as a business journalist. And when I reunited with my high school economics professor, I just had this loaded meeting of life question for him. He was driving through. He's retired. He has an RV with his wife. He was here a couple of years ago in Central Virginia. And I said, Mr. Lutness, Professor Lutness, like the, you know, the Tootsie Roll owl, you know, how many licks does it take? I go, sir, what is normal? What is the meaning of normal? When was it ever normal? Can you give me a baseline year when we didn't have war or inflation or overstimulative interest rates or something bizarre happening like a pandemic? And he didn't blink an eye. He said normal was the year, the time, the month you graduated from college, what yes. the world was like. Talk about that. Yes. 
Uh, it's true. I mean, historically, of course, there is no normal. It's uh, it's always crazy. In the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he talks about, I'm, I'm gonna, I might badly paraphrase this, but he says, any technology that exists when you are, are, are young is exciting because you can make a career out of it if it's a new technology. If you're like over the age 30, then it's a threat to your career that you've already built up. So young people look at new technology and like really exciting, but old people look at it as a threat to them. So like what is new technology? It's whatever comes out when you're young. Like the new technology that comes out when you're old is not exciting technology. It's a threat to you. So I think, yeah, it's true that everyone just anchors to what they've personally experienced and, and, and what they've been through. You could also see this in 2008 when after the financial crisis, gold became very popular when the Fed was printing a lot of money during this period. Yeah, like there are a lot of gold bugs back then. I remember Mr. T, Mr. T coming to Bloomberg headquarters yes. and advertising gold. <laughs> what what better mascot for gold than Mr. Yeah. T? But but what generation did that lean towards that was, that was most appealing to? It was not my generation because at the time we had never experienced any inflation in our entire life. It no. was my parents' generation, the baby boomers, who lived through the 70s and the inflation and the 15% mortgage rates of the 70s and were still scarred by it. So even though someone like myself mm. or you could read about that and, and try to empathize with it, we, we don't have the emotional scars that the baby boomers who experienced it firsthand do. And I have that experience as well. I'm sure myself and you will be scarred by COVID in different ways, in ways that my children will not necessarily understand. And my children can read about COVID. They might have a couple of brief memories from when they were, you know, they were two years old living through it, but they're not going to be scarred in the way that you and I were in 2020. So every generation has their own scars. And some of them are positive scars. Like if you grew up in the in the in the '90s, like you you have to experience what a real bull market feels like. Sure. And that's like a if positive scar is, is a way is a weird way to phrase it, but everyone anchors to their own experience. And you want to think that we are responding to the world in a really objective way. We're just looking at the data, but no, we're all looking at it through the own lens of our experience. And a lot of our experiences are outside of our control. It's where and when you were born are the biggest. So let's not pretend that if you and I were born in Africa in 1752, that we would have the same views about the economy and, and investing and compound interest that you and I do today. A lot of it is just the dumb luck of where and when we were born. So that's, it's a big part of really what shapes economic views and vibes and consumer confidence. What about this ongoing push to take human emotion out of investing? You hear about the rise of the robo-advisors and indexing was one. I mean, indexing and ETFs and the others kind of don't beat the market, just try to be the market. But even then, when I try to hold a value investor's hand to the fire and say, what is being the market? I've asked Tom, I've asked Saurabh, I've asked your other contemporaries. Yeah, they teach you in B school and in finance, you want to have the efficient frontier. If you could theoretically own a piece of every asset on the planet, I'm talking Peruvian alpacas, Haas avocados, right? Liquid stuff and keep your cost basis at a kind of a minimum and transaction fees. Things would zig when others would zag. And over the long run, whatever the heck the long run is, you'd be in the best shape. In practice, markets aren't very liquid. China, for as much as it's had a miracle really since the turn of the century in terms of taking people out of poverty, its stock market is still a backwater. These are frustrating things because our emotions always want to intervene. And our, our, our anchored opinions. Yeah, I think when you look at an index, uh, I think you are taking cost out of the, uh, at least part of the cost out of the equation. You're taking you're adding diversification. You're taking a lot of effort out of the equation. You are not taking emotion out of the equation at all. Finance is always going to be emotional because for most people, what finance and investing is, is their ability to retire and their ability to send their kids to college. And at the personal finance level, your ability to afford medical bills and where you live. These are very emotional topics, always have been and always will be. So even as we become quote unquote better at finance and understand you have new investing products and tools and data and context and whatnot, it's always going to be emotional for everybody. It's a, like I write about the emotions of investing for a living and I'm not going to pretend that I'm unemotional about my money. Of course I'm not. I'm not going to pretend that when I think about my future ability to retire, my career, my social status and standing that I'm completely unemotional about it. Absolutely not. I don't think anyone is. Some people are more emotional than others, but I don't think anyone just looks at money as just a spreadsheet endeavor. It's always kind of a social and lifestyle endeavor. And for even a lot of people like Buffett and those kind of people, it's their net worth is in some ways the representation of their life's work. And of course, they are more than that. They are good human beings and they are loved human beings by their family. But really, I think that's really what it is. It's a scorecard of like how well you've done. And that, of course, is like extremely emotional. Let's not pretend that if you take that away, they're going to be the same people. So no matter what the products are, it's always going to be a, a very emotional endeavor. I got to ask you, 
What is it about, and again, you're not spokesperson for value investors necessarily. Every time I try to talk to them about the brass tacks of value, or they invite me to their value investing predators balls, you know, various things that go on here, or value and veil or value there. They don't want to talk about stocks or value. They want to talk about human nature, greed, fear, kind of the immutable truths of life. I guess at some point, do you realize there's only so much to be gleaned from kind of pitching a uh, something selling at a, a fraction of kind of liquidation value and its, its moat, its competitive moat and Warren Buffett-esque things you guys talk about more levitated issues. Well, I think I think if you're a value investor, you're probably a student of history because we're not talking about how new technologies will impact the future. We're saying, let's look at the history of what's worked in the past. And when you read the economic history, it becomes apparent to anybody very quickly that what was happening 100 years ago in terms of the behaviors are the exact same as they are today. And they're the exact same as they will be 100 years from now. My favorite economic book is a book called The Great Depression, A Diary. And it's written by this Ohio lawyer named Benjamin Roth, who he was a bankruptcy attorney, and he kept a very detailed diary during the Great Depression in the 1930s. It's such a fascinating book. He's writing in 1932, which was the bottom of the Great Depression. And I thought to myself, if you change the dates on this post from 1932 to 2008, everything would make sense. What he was writing about in 1932 is exactly what people were thinking and saying in 2008. And then like two pages later, Benjamin Roth is writing in 1932, and he says that if you change the dates from 1932 to 1894, it's exactly the same. Everything that they were doing in 1934 is exactly what they were doing in 1894. The, the characters change, the details change, but it's the same movie over and over and over again. You were listening to some of the recent episodes, same as it ever was. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Notterly, Case Graham and Claire Morgan, and the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. Again, if you're listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast length, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. Follow along on all social media at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on Radio IQ. We're down in North Carolina on WPVM, out in California on KPPQ. You could always message me if you'd like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.